0: on the verge on the verge is presented by cure cannabis used for research and education the medical industry is steadfastly looking to help millions of patients that suffer from injuries related to repetitive motion sports trauma and many other orthopedic injuries as well as skin disorders mental disorders cancer and osteoporosis to name only a few of the other underlying conditions that billions suffer from each day. On average in this country we have 10,000 people turning 65 every day. With the cost of pharmaceutical medicines increasing, patients deserve natural alternatives that are not only more cost-effective but also safer for them and society. Cure is focused on providing natural alternatives to aid with current or previous medical conditions. Cure does this by providing a therapeutic properties of natural cannabinoid formulations for multiple uses, whether internally or externally. Ask your physical therapist or your primary care physician if cannabinoids are right for you, or check out their website at www.curemich.com. Cure, cannabis used for research and education.
1: On the Verge is also brought to you by Green Scene, Green Scene is a family-owned company recognized as the Sizzle Award winner for outdoor living in Williamson County. We design and construct areas to blend with the natural landscape of your yard. That can include outdoor spaces, gazebos, fire pits, outdoor kitchens, and yes, putting greens. We understand the importance of your home. That's why we never settle for anything but the best. Green Scene also provides multiple teams with professional landscape maintenance, irrigation, and outdoor lighting.
0: Welcome to On the Verge. Today's special guest is a The partner and CEO emeritus of Blue Mark LLC, and we are doing this at the amazing JB's Whiskey House. We are. In Nashville, Tennessee, we've just done an extensive Weller tasting. We did a blind tasting where my pappy showed up and uh he set the world on fire. I'm so fortunate to be here with Ken Sachs. Ken, how are you today, buddy?
1: I'm I'm doing great and it's great to have you here and it's great to participate in this and I'm glad you got to taste some amazing whiskeys. Man, so it's that that kind of sets the tone for the conversation, doesn't it? It really does. Um, how did you fall in
0: love with whiskey? This is a great thing. like this place is unbelievable. If you don't know this, I'm in a I'm in a basically what looks like a just like an old, like almost like a whiskey store, like a, a liquor store, and it is literally hundreds, if not thousands, of the of whiskeys from all over the world, so, and, uh, and we're in the uh, the rare room whiskey library whiskey library. Yeah, this is a this yeah. is quite a show, so Yeah,
1: it's, so it's a, it's an interesting it's an interesting place. So the your question was how did I get involved with this, right? Yeah. So the story is. Uh, About uh, nine or ten years ago, I was having a a surprise birthday party for my wife, Lisa, Mm -hmm. um, and uh, a colleague of hers. She's in the real estate world, and she is an amazing realtor, by the way, just to let you know. One of the top producers in Nashville and an amazing lady that I can't speak enough about. So I decided to throw her a surprise birthday party. And her colleague, John Brittle, was holding a... um, house. He was renting a house right across the street from a restaurant where we were going to do the, uh, the surprise. So he says, hey, come on over before the, uh, before the event. We'll have a, a drink and then we'll take her over and surprise her. I said, awesome. Sounds great. So I walked into this house with Lisa and I thought he was just renting the house. Well, he was renting the house, but not to live in the house. He was renting the house because that's where he was holding his collection of whiskey. And at that time, he had over 600 bottles, personal bottles, of whiskey, rye, anything in that genre that he was part of. So we got to taste, and that evolved into a group of guys that, core collectors, you know, they would buy and sell and trade mm-hmm. on the open market and do all those kinds of things. And they've got together, and uh, it's grown. And today, we have 110 members as part of this uh, group, and it, it has formalized into a nonprofit. And the nonprofit has uh, really uh, three main parts of its mission. One Mm -hmm. is whiskey education. So we bring people to this venue. We teach them about whiskey. We hold classes. We do all kinds of things like that. The second part is the social part. There's 110 members. So you get to come in and have camaraderie and join, bring friends, bring business colleagues and things like that. Mm -hmm. The third, and what I align myself with, and the most important thing to me is the mission of raising money for charity. We raise a ton of money for charity, and we do that one of two ways. One is some of the bottles that we acquire, um, we'll donate those to a charitable organization, and then they will auction that off, right? And whatever money they get, they keep. Mm -hmm. The other thing is we'll do corporate tastings. We're tastings for these organizations where we'll set up a you know a tasting like we've done for you mm-hmm. you know with a with five or six or seven different types we'll host that we'll talk about the history of those those bottles and people participate and pay to do that for uh, the way to raise money for charity so that's it's fun man yeah. it's it's and it's just you know I like to say we do well when we do good I'll say. You know, so we're doing good by yeah, by raising money and having a good time doing it.
0: Yeah. So I mean and you're gonna have a lot more time to spend here uh, <laughs> as you are you you've stepped into a new position. Yeah. Uh, as as you uh, I, I would love to hear this. But one of the things sure. I was doing when I was looking up Ken Sachs and one word that goes everywhere I go when it comes to looking for you is innovation.
1: Okay.
0: Um obviously in the in the healthcare world Innovation is probably, if it's not the key, it is one of the big keys because it's ever-evolving and is radically full of competition. When you think about what you've done in 22 years at at Bluemark, what were some of the key innovations that you brought to to the company that took
1: it to the place where it is right now? It's a great question. Um, There were processes in place that um, were cumbersome. In the world, in the space that we've been in. Now, Let me give you just kind of a little bit of history mm-hmm. of how Bluemark formed, because I think that's really important. Sure. So we were the outgrowth of a consulting firm, a very small consulting firm that was founded by my father and a partner of his at one time. And we can talk about my dad, had, you know, sure. since it's coming up on Father's Day, we yeah. can talk about that separately. But um, there were some things that he identified in the world, in that healthcare world, that were just roadblocks, Right. And the roadblocks were specifically to BlueMark, uh, which uh, developed into a, we were a healthcare IT company. So we provided software as a service, and we developed some early technologies to be able to solve some of the problems that were causing these roadblocks. Hmm. So the first one uh, was a roadblock in New York City, and the uh, long-term care nursing home market. They were having tremendous difficulty getting their Medicaid applications processed by New York City. Um, uh, so that the nursing homes could get reimbursed. I mean, it's it's a, it's a major part of their reimbursement process. Mm-hmm. It's a major revenue stream, and specifically in New York City, and specifically in the lower income areas of New York City, most of these clients were on Medicaid, or they would spend down their income quickly to get to Medicaid, right? So this is how they got reimbursed. Well, it was taking the city of New York six months, eight months, Oof. nine months, to process these applications. <clears throat> so the nursing home operators were like, well, we need our money. How do we get this done more quickly? To the point where they were literally taking their keys, walking down to City Hall and going, if you guys can't fix this problem, then we don't know how to operate. We can't operate anymore. So my father and his partner and uh, a couple of young guys who were in the software world, Um, put their heads together and said, let's see if we can automate some of these processes for the city. So we entered into a memorandum of understanding with the city of New York and said, listen, we're going to develop some technology. We're going to give you that technology. We're going to let you have this. On the other side, we went to the nursing home operators and said, we're going to license this to you guys because we can expedite this dramatically and you can get your money faster. So that's kind of how the business started. Mm -mm, Nice. right? So we solved that problem. And then we recognized there was the same problem on the acute care side for hospitals. Sure. So the technology evolved, uh, evolved so that um, we could automate a lot of the manual processes that they were using. These hospitals were using in their office procedures. Hmm. Basically, the assessment and the enrollment for lower income or uninsured clients, because the hospitals, when you go into a hospital and you walk into the emergency room, whether you have insurance or not. They must treat you, right? If you don't have coverage, they end up writing that off to bad debt. So if you can help them qualify or assign or figure out where that client really goes or help them enroll in Medicaid, which helps the family, by the way. Sure. Right? I mean, they need coverage, right? And it's not just low income as most people picture low income. Um, I think there's a label to that that's probably not correct, and it's an old-school label thinking of a family that, you know, they don't want to work, and they just, you know, they're ready to take government assistance. That's not the current environment. The environment really is those people who can't afford insurance. So it could be a young couple. He's going to grad school. She's working to support the family. They just can't afford health care. So Medicaid, Healthcare, the American Care Act, those were all good things mm-hmm. that help people allow themselves to be healthy, get the kind of coverage they need. So, the technology helps those hospitals identify that um, and qualify them and get them enrolled so they can have a good, normal, healthy life. Hmm. So, that was an innovation. <clears throat> yeah. Right? Absolutely. And we we're, were a small firm, a boutique firm, but we were competing against very large organizations that did things differently, more of an old-school way, and we were able to carve out a really interesting segment of that market.
0: Finding the niche is critical. And the earlier you can find it, hopefully it's a passion too, Right. that sets the table for you. Yeah. When did you feel like
1: you found what it is that you were really good at? <clears throat> I would say when we found were able to convince our first major client that this was going to provide a benefit to them. And that was uh, NYU, New York uh, New York University Hospital in the city, one of the biggest hospital systems in New York. Yeah. And they bought into the process and they said, we think this was really, good, really going to be good for us. And it was. Yeah. And that was kind of the launching point. And then once we had that Keystone client, we were able to then take it to other clients that bought into the process as well. Got it. Yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah.
0: Like healthcare
1: and the healthcare industry is so vast.
0: It is mind-bogglingly vast. And I didn't realize how the tentacles, how far they reach out. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because like right now we're coming out of the, the pandemic as in like what everybody would think is the pandemic. Right? Yes. We don't hear about it anymore. Right. There's not much going on about it anymore. Right. It seems like it's still here. We would have to be still here, but it's not no longer front and center. But it's definitely created some issues within the hospital scenario and the healthcare industry. And I'm fascinated to see where we go in the next couple of years. Yeah.
1: It's, it has again forced the industry to innovate right Uh, within our circle. Right. So we're in the business side. Our technology is in the business office side versus the clinical side you had large hospital systems that employed hundreds of people that now had to work remotely. Well, how do you do that? Or how did they do that? Right? So interestingly enough, our technology, once again, was able to ad- help them adapt to that process. Because wow. one of the innovations that we developed and were able to launch right before the pandemic, so it was, let's call it a perfect storm,
0: Yeah, uh,
1: was the ability to allow patients to enroll and um, do the uh, assistance uh, applications and things that they had to do for these assistance programs on their phones, on their tablets, so they could do all that remotely. If they had to provide documentation, driver's license, bills, whatever, you take a picture of it, you submit it. So now you could do that whole process rather than having to come into the hospital, be interviewed by a financial counselor, and do that person-to-person. So it dramatically changed and has changed, and it has stuck because it not only makes it more efficient for the hospital, it's more patient-centric, right? Because we live in a different world now. People live on their phones. Yeah. You know? So if I send you a link, you go to the hospital and you don't have coverage, and I say, hey, Virgil, would you like a discount on your bill? Uh, yeah. I think I'd like to click this link and... And then we would take you through the process and see if you actually do qualify for a public assistance program or a financial assistance program that's within the hospital environment. Oh, wow. Because they have discount programs in the hospital. People don't know about them. Well, we're helping them educate the public Understand? Is that on purpose? Yeah. <laughs> Is what on purpose?
0: <laughs> Is, like, making it so that you don't know that some things, some things are available
1: to you. No, I don't think so. I, I just think hospitals don't do a good enough job of marketing that. Oh. I don't. I don't think they do it purposely, hmm. uh, because if they don't, um, they won't get any reimbursement, oh. right? So it's a balance. So they. It's just. It's a different way to do business, and you know. And in the defense of hospitals, you know, a hospital is there for really one reason—to provide care, mm-hmm. right? And they're under excruciatingly difficult. They operate in an excruciating, difficult environment because you have government legislation that that is very um, cumbersome, you know, from a reporting perspective. Yeah. There's so much administration around healthcare. I'm sure it's the same thing. When you go in even to get treatment, how many forms do I have to fill out? How many things are, before I even go in and walk in and see a doctor, yeah. right? Well, the backside of that, that hospital has to administer all of that, right? So you have all of that overhead, right? When all they want to do is, you know, the doctors want to provide care. They don't want to be administrators. Yeah, You know, they live, they took their Hippocratic oath to say, I want to treat people. I want to help people get better. I don't want to be filling out forums. I don't want to be doing reports. Yeah. But that's what they're forced to do in today's environment. Wow. Fascinating. So
0: you're you're getting, you're stepping down. You've been acquired. What's that process like? I'm, I'm fascinated by <laughs> um, people who... who Build something. Yeah. I guess I mean, let, me, let me start with this question. Did you start with the end in mind when you began the process of, of Blue Mark? Or did the, the, just the timing of what it is that you wanted in this phase of your life work out in conjunction with the, uh, the acquiring of the company?
1: The former rather than the latter. Yeah. Um, no, I didn't have the end in mind to say, okay, I'm going to build a company and someday sell it and be able to, you know, comfortably retire or or do whatever. Yeah. No, I I like the building process. The building process was the thing that was most fun to me because hmm. I'd been in a du- number of different businesses before the you know before we started with Bloomark. Yeah. And it was always that building process that kind of uh, I liked the best. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, so, but the end result was, you know, we've been in this business for 21 years, we built it, I have two partners mm-hmm. and 10, we're all 10 years apart. I'm being the oldest, I'm the grand old man, Yeah. right? Um, so, you know, they're a different space in their life. So I would say three to four years ago, you know, we did look at the company and we had grown the company to a point where we thought that, you know, an exit strategy might begin to make sense especially for me, because yeah. that's something that I actually did want to do, you know, and I said, let's put a plan together to see if we can get to a certain revenue point. If we can, let's see what the market would be like at that point. And, you know, again, kind of a perfect storm and things mm-hmm. kind of came together for us. So. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. Because I'm always, I'm
0: always intrigued because my business is repetitive mm-hmm. and fairly predictable. Somebody's going to come in, they're struggling. Yep. My job is to identify the cancer. Yeah. Treat it. Yep. and let you enjoy the game again
1: mm-hmm.
0: and it but like when you're dealing with like software IT innovation it's way more complex and it is especially probably in the last 10 years yep. it's changing so fast okay. that by the time your cool do stuff came out it's almost outdated yes. as is
1: No we, we always and we constantly had to innovate. you know we called it being in a perpetual stage of development. So it's not like we had a canned piece of software. That said, "Okay, this is great. We've built this. We had this great idea. We can now, you know, license it and everybody uses it." No, it doesn't work that way because it's in in our world, in the healthcare world, which is an ever changing market. Yeah. The legislative responsibilities change it, the laws change it, workflow changes, hospitals merging. There's all these different moving parts. And I think one of the reasons we were highly successful is that we were a smaller company, so we were nimble and we were able to quickly adapt. And I will Mm -hmm. give credit to my partners, who, you know, because I am not the software guy. Yeah. Right. Um, but they developed the architecture in a way so that when we had to make changes, we could do that. And if not, you know, again, credit to the team. Um, and I'm talking about a young team yeah. who are able to help us, you know, create those uh, new solutions and new things that, that the market would need. Got it. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah.
0: Wow. Well, you know, we're, this, uh, this podcast will come out the Friday before Father's Day. And I, we've, we've talked off air while we were tasting Weller, <laughs> uh, um, the impact that your dad had on your life and the amazing story about your dad. Share, share this uh, amazing story about your father. Sure. And, and what he has meant to you and where you are today right
1: now. Yeah, well, he's meant everything to me. Just, <clears throat> let's just start there. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, he, he's taught me the things that I've tried to carry through in my life that are most important. So, one is generosity. He was the most generous person that I'd ever met in my life, still to this day. Everything he did, he did for his family. You know, nothing ever for himself. It was always important what he was giving to somebody else. You know, doing stuff for himself, that was always at the farthest back of, you know, farthest piece of his mind was, was that. So, generosity was definitely one. Number two is a work ethic. He was a worker. Mm -hmm. He just head down and worked. And I'll tell you, I'll give you the history of what he did because he's got an an amazing work career that's really interesting and really fun to talk about. Um, And discipline. Not discipline like, Ken, you did something wrong. (laughs) I'm going to slap your wrist. Discipline in, okay, if you want to accomplish something, stick to it, focus on it, understand where you want to get to, put a plan together to get there and execute the plan. Yeah, and that is not easy to do.
0: Yeah, the processes Be- and systems of our life are what make us or break us.
1: Ab- absolutely. <clears throat> and, and those are the biggest pitfalls, right? And, you know, and there are distractions every day in your life. Mm-hmm. You know? You've got news. You've got health. You've got all these things going on. Relationships. doesn't matter, yep. right? Um, but those are, I like to call them white noise, and not that they're not important; they're the most important things in your life. I mean, things that are happening in the world are important, things that are happening in your family important, your yep. relationship. But if you're trying to accomplish something and you have a plan, you have to figure out a way to make that plan work. Period. Otherwise, you won't get there. Oh wow! So that's what he taught me, you know. And be that's a good, good person. That's and a be a good, good, good person. Absolutely. You know what a great start. And be a good person. So. And, and indulge me for a minute because sure. it's a little bit of a long story. It's fine, but this is a long podcast. Okay, well then we'll be able to <laughs> f- We'll be able to fill the time very easily. <laughs> and let me have a sip of Weller to kind yes. of kick this off. So right now the, we're drinking the, the full uh, proof. Yes, we're drinking CYPB. Uh, it's a ninety-five foot, uh, ninety-five proof bourbon. So we've we started with the uh, Weller Special Reserve, and then we blind tasted the Weller Twelve. And the Pappy Van Winkle, the Van Winkle twelve-year-old Lot B, and Virgil liked the twelve-year-old Lot B.
0: And uh, to, right? to my my rookie credit,
1: yeah, <laughs> we were Great tasting it blind.
0: And I stuck my nose in the in the snifter. I'm like, okay, so this is different. Not in having any idea that what mm-hmm. we were tasting at mm-hmm. all, I'm like, okay, so this is very different. Yeah, way bigger, way forward. And I'm like, took a sip. I'm like. Okay, this is, like, otherworldly good.
1: <laughs> yeah. And you had this little
0: snicker, like, okay, I wonder what this is. Oh, it's the Pap.
1: Yeah, 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 Pappy Van Winkle. So, And, and you know, I'm, I'm sure the listeners know, and if they don't know, you know, it is probably one of the most well-renowned whiskeys in the world. Yeah. It's allocated very difficult, and for a reason. It's because it is that good. Yeah, right. I can yeah. attest, and you know, and whiskey like anything else. Listen, it's it's flavor profile. It's what you like, and some people will like it and say, "Well, I think that's overrated." But I think, you know, but I think the general consensus is that you know, it is what it is, and people like it because it is that good. Yeah, I can definitely agree
0: because yeah. I had never had it before until now, and it uh, stands to reason why it is so famous. Yep, because it is, and the thing is so that We talked about it is like essentially the same recipe. Yes, different yes. barrels and different places within yep. the distillery. Yep, height and what have you. Yep. But at the end of the day, yep. the same recipe. So yep. we're we're tasting all same recipes. Yeah. And yet they are so radically different. And I, th- I remember you talking about yeah. that's the art of why you why
1: you love it so much. This yeah. Is, yeah. Yeah. To me, it's 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 mesmerizing in the in the sense to me that you know you have a product that. Is a natural product, right? So you're using grains. You know, bourbon is 51% corn at a minimum, and then the rest of the rest of the mash bill is going to be whatever you want it to be. It could be more corn, it could be rye, it could be malted barley, it could be, you know, other things that you introduce. But when you buy something off the shelf, there's hundreds, or maybe thousands of barrels that have gone into that rest, you know, that particular, you know, load. And it tastes the same every time. So the master stiller has the ability to go through that rickhouse, you know, the warehouse where all these barrels are stored, mm-hmm. and blend all of these different things from a natural product because they're all stored in white oak barrels. Yep. Every barrel comes from, a, every stave of a barrel comes from a different tree, Right. So you've got that natural product, you've got the corn, you've got the grains, you've got all of those things, you've got the humidity, you've got temperature, you've got all those things that are always affecting all of these things and they get it to taste the same way every time. That's a gift. It's a gift. It's an art. Yeah. It's it, there's some si- there's obviously science to it, but it it's is an art form. It's a it's a gift of the art. Yeah. Yeah,
0: it really is. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, and it, that's
1: what makes it so interesting. Yeah,
0: I mean to me. You know, if anybody, obviously, if you've been listening to my podcast long enough, you know that I'm more wine than I am whiskey. But the 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 blind tasting is very similar on what you would go through to kind of like yeah. pick out the, the the highlights and the yeah. points of what you're what you're experiencing. Yeah, yeah, this has been uh, that's fun. It has. This yes, is really yeah. interesting. Yeah, and that first first whiskey tastings that I've ever done, other than just you know be at home and get a gift and <laughs> uh, pour some Jack Daniels into a glass and that's about. What's it
1: like? Yeah. Well it's interesting because like you said, we've tasted one, two, three, four, five, six. Well, we haven't gotten through all of them, but there's yeah. seven different bottles of Weller here. Well, six bottles of Weller and one of the Van Winkle. Yeah. All the exact same mash bowl, meaning the same recipe, aged differently, different proofs, and there are significant differences. But it's all the same recipe. Yeah. It's, it's interesting great. to me. No doubt. All right. Let's
0: get back to your dad. Yeah. You know, he's a he's a fine he's a fine blend of a man. So tell so, so tell us talk to us about yeah. his businesses, and the things that he did that really also helped shape your business life.
1: I'd like to do that. Can I start a little bit before sure. that, though? Because Absolutely. he has such an interesting life, and I think this would be kind of fun to talk about. So he was born in 1921. Okay. He was born in New York City. Uh, his parents, his dad was from, his dad was Lebanese, his mom was German. He was a change of life baby. Wasn't meant to be there. Mother didn't want him. She threw herself down the steps to try to abort the pregnancy. Didn't work. But what did happen was she had to have an emergency appendectomy. They were living in Philadelphia. So they called him the miracle baby. And the reason they called him the miracle baby was they had to perform a surgery in 1921 that they had never done before, which was basically open her up, remove the womb, do the appendectomy, and put him back in. No kidding. Yeah. There's an article in the Philadelphia Inquirer. We have it somewhere. One of the pre- one, of, one of my cousins in the family has it somewhere where they did this. It was the first time that surgery was ever done. That's unbelievable. It was unbelievable at that wow. time. Wow. 1920s. Yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> right? So so that was the start of his storied life, right? And a pretty interesting start yeah. to begin with. So, um, depression years. Right, And we talk about people living through all kinds of interesting things he did live through the Depression years. So his, his dad and his mom, they were living in Philadelphia. That's where he was born. They moved up to New York. And I asked my dad, I said, well, what did your dad do? He goes, well, he didn't really have a job. We'll call He was an operator. I said, well, what does that mean? He goes, I don't know. He was always in business, but I'm not sure what his business was. I said, okay. So they moved up to Brooklyn, New York. And his dad um, bought a candy store in Brooklyn. The candy store is located in Brooklyn and typical, which was not atypical at that time as they lived above the candy store and the business was downstairs, mm-hmm. right? So the candy store, Brooklyn, became the hangout for basically the Jewish mafia. Oh, so wow. they would come into the store. They would take over the back room and have card games and dice games. And you know some of the players. Some of the players would have been Bugsy Siegel and the crew. They were hanging out in my dad's parents' candy store. How about that? So my dad was really smart as a young kid. He had much older siblings. Like I said, he was a change-of-life baby. So they would teach him how to read, you know, and all of I mean, he was just a really, really super smart young guy. So elementary school, you know, he, at that time he could skip grades. you could do all these kinds of things. So he did all of that. And um, he, went to, um, he went to college. And he was the first one in the family ever to go to college. And his parents said, we want to make sure you could go to college. So they always put money away for him to be able to do that. So he went to St. John's University in New York City at night because everybody worked then. You had to work during the day. Mm -hmm. And their contribution was his education, but they would not let him work in the candy store because they did not want him exposed to that element. So he had to go work somewhere else. Oh, wow. So he did. So he graduated St. John's University, and as he was graduating, uh, World War II was beginning, right? And um, he had to make a decision, what do I do? And so he enlisted. You know, He says, I'm going to enlist. He goes, but he graduated with an accounting degree. And he thinks, all right, this is great. I'll enlist, and i am apply, and I'll see if I can get into the, you know, the, the Army Audit Division, the accounting division of the United States Army. Well, as our government does sometimes, they don't do things that make common sense. So they didn't put him in that. They sent him down to North Carolina to climb telephone poles and put up electrical wires. And he hated heights. So this wasn't great. Wow. All Right? So, again, being a smart guy, apparently you could take tests to see if you can get into some other division of the Army. So he did. And he ends up going out to, or he's going to go out to... San Diego. Um, and he was going to be in a unit that did audio and movies to do, um, to documents of the things that were happening in the war. So they were married. My mom and dad were married at that time. They had got married and they were living in Brooklyn and they were living actually in my mom's parents' apartment. And my grandfather was a tailor. And my grandfather emigrated on my mom's side. He emigrated from Russia. He was sent over from Russia when he was 12 years old, because at that time they were having these things called the pogroms in Russia, if you remember them, which were they basically they were corralling a lot of the Jewish folks, putting them into these communities, ghettos, and they didn't want him to be involved with that. So they sent him over to New York City by himself when he was 12 years old. Wow. So he emigrated through Ellis Island, coming through Ellis Island. You know, he's standing in front of a judge, because everybody gets naturalized, and he looks up at the judge, and the judge says, well, what's your name, young man? He goes, Jacob Malarchik And the judge looks down at him and says, well, that's not a great American name. He goes, well, what is na- what should your name, what should my name be? He goes, well, we're going to make you Jacob Miller. So he became Jacob Miller, and that was his American name. But he was a tailor. So back to my dad's story, so he's got a good On a troop train, he and my mom are going on a troop train out to California, right? Mm. So being a tailor, you know, no one had credit cards or anything. They had their cash, you know. So my grandfather sews a pocket into my mom's bra, and that's where they kept their cash on their way out to San Diego. So my dad's involved in this audio unit. And listen, my dad was the least technical guy I've ever met in my life. It just wasn't good. Him and technology, not a, no. not a good thing. Just not a good thing. <clears throat> so they get out to California, and everybody works. So my mom finds a place to live in a boarding house, which was right, right outside the base. So, you know, she gets settled in, and she says, well, how am I going to get to work every day? Because nobody had cars. They said, well, we're going to have a car pick you up, and they'll take you to the base. You know, she was going to be a secretary. Said, it's great. So she's standing outside the house, first day waiting for her ride. A limousine pulls up. she never lived in it. Been in a limousine. So who was she riding to work with every day? Lou Costello. Lou Costello pulls up into a limousine, picks up my mom, and she's riding to work with Lou Costello. I said, this isn't real. Does this really happen to my parents? Right? <laughs> so, you know, so he's on this base for a while. And, uh, you know, the war is going on, and eventually he gets his call to go overseas, right? So his unit gets called overseas. So he went over on the Queen Mary, which was commissioned at that time to bring troops over, mm-hmm. and he hated it. And why said, why did he hate it? He said, well, he said, it's an English ship. And my dad was kind of a finicky eater to begin with, and he goes, all they would serve was mutton. And I'm like, really. He existed. To this day and, you know, to that day, he said, he never ate lamb after that again. (laughs) But he said, the greatest thing was when we landed, the Red Cross was there, and they had boxes of donuts. And he had a sweet tooth in his life, and he loved donuts till his dying day from that part. So, they go, they finally get deployed, right, and they're going through, so um, their charge as a unit was they had to follow the troops into Germany as they were liberating the concentration camps. So we have a family album, because he took private pictures, he took his own camera. We have pictures that are Holocaust-worthy museum-related pictures. So it was obviously very powerful to him to experience that and happen. Um. So that had a profound effect on his life. Oh, wow, obviously, I get, I guess, for sure. Yeah. Um, finally, comes back to the states. Gets his first job with the federal government. He was working for the Army Audit Division, which was great. Um, and then he um, got a call because they were developing a new um, national agency, federal government, which was called. NASA. So he was, um, uh, he went to work for NASA as the director of audit for NASA. He was recruited to be the director of audit for NASA. So we moved, we were living in New York, and we moved down to Washington, D.C. So as a young boy, it was so exciting for me because being part of the space program, even though you're not on the technical side, you're part of the program. And I remember my dad telling me this story. He goes, when JFK made the speech that we're going to the moon and we're in a race against Russia, he said, everybody, everybody that worked for NASA, whether you were a potential astronaut, whether you worked in the audit division, it didn't matter. Everyone was so pumped up. And so excited, there was this national spirit that we have to accomplish this. Mm -hmm. So it was exciting times for me while he was doing that. Mm -hmm. So he had a great career doing that. You know, he'd be traveling to Huntsville, Alabama, and Cape Canaveral and Mm -hmm. stuff, and he would bring me home, model rockets, and all the cool things that you did as being part of the space program. But interestingly enough, back then, you had to retire at a certain age. It was mandatory retirement, which doesn't exist now because people would think it would be discriminatory, I guess, yeah. or some other thing. So he retired from NASA. And then um, he went to work for a private firm, accounting firm in New York City, that within one year was acquired by Ernst & Ernst, one of the largest private accounting firms in the world. At that time, there were eight largest. They were, remember the big eight. Mm-hmm. So he immediately became a partner with Ernst & Ernst, had to retire again because of his age. So then he was recruited by the state of New York to build their audit division. So it was the called the Office of Program Integrity. It was the audit division, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Had a career there, retired again, had to do the same thing. So he went to the state of Connecticut, did the same thing for the state of Connecticut, retired wow. again, and then he formed his own private consulting firm, that was ultimately acquired uh, acquired by Deloitte Consulting. And that was kind of his final gig. So he had five different pensions. I said, Dad, is that fair? He goes, I don't know. He goes, it is what it is. <laughs> you know, He goes, it'll be great for your mom when I'm not around. So a pretty storied career, I think, and a pretty interesting story. And all the, the things, right? That they saw. I mean, like
0: the, obviously, born barely at the end of World War One. Yep. Depression, World War II, JFK—you know, on and on and on—and on. oh wow, yeah, lived through a lot of history, lived and, through and a lot, saw so much, it saw so much. Wow, and like that kind of stuff it gets handed over to you, not through just experience, but it gets through your genetics too. Like you have this um, this code in you to be adventurous in a business atmosphere, to take risks. You know, another thing that says about you is you—you you take calculated risk, right? And I think that risk taking is an undersold art form of the of of the accomplished. Agreed. You know, people are there's a lot of people that are afraid to jump yep. to trust the parachute, <laughs> and that's not me. No, you know, or me. I'm I'm like, and you know, I'm getting ready to uh, abandon will be considered the normal golf atmosphere. And I'm going to put uh, a Trackman training center in my home. Yeah. And I'm going to, because I don't need a driving range anymore. No. The technology is so unbelievable. Yeah. So that means I don't need a golf course. Nope. Because fortunately I have, I've been very fortunate to have a great co- client list. Yeah. Well, now I'm just going to create an awesome experience. Yeah. I might even have a wine tasting room. In my yeah. or a whiskey tasting room, yeah. in my golf yeah, simulator, yeah. and have a we'll double dip. Ooh, I like that <laughs> double dip. But I mean, th- the fact that calculated risk—you know—I I couldn't have done that five years ago because the technology wasn't ready. Right now, it is. When you think of the best or the coolest story of your calculated risk taking, what's your favorite story to tell?
1: Um, it starts with betting on yourself. Yeah. Right. I mean, you have to have the, um, the will to do it. Right. Um, it takes a little bit of gumption to do it, a lot of gumption to do it. Um, so I would say when I graduated college, I knew I wanted to be in business for myself. Right. I was a pre-med student and I thought, well, maybe I want to go to dental school. And I got to the end of college. You know what? I don't want to do that. I just want to work for myself. I'm not sure how I'm going to do it. I wasn't even sure how. So when I talked early about having a plan, I didn't have a plan. Mm-hmm. So the first thing I did was I started mowing lawns. I literally started mowing lawns. I said, well, because I know how to do this. This is really easy. I can make money as I'm starting to figure out. But at least I'm in control of my own destiny. And I wanted to always be in control of my own destiny. Yeah. You know, and then, 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 I, then I hired a couple of guys. And we, you know, we built that. And then I said, well, what am I going to do in the wintertime? I mean, I can't really mow, cut lawns and cut grass in the wintertime, so I started a carpet cleaning business. And then I started to do that, and then I associated myself with a, a retail store in town. And the guy kind of pulled me in, and Tommy goes, you know, you should really be involved in this store with me. And I was very young and very naive. So I said, that sounds great. So I did, and I got involved with him in this floor covering score store. And within a year I realized I've made a major mistake here. This guy is, this store is failing. I did not know it was failing. It was a disaster and he was looking just to get out. So he left. And I mean left. It's not like I bought him, invested, he just kind of said, okay, it's all you. And I said, well, now what do I do? And now I had a major challenge and again, I was betting on myself. So What do I do now? So brought my dad down, went through the books in greater detail than I did on my own. And he goes, yep, we're in trouble. I said, well, what do I do? So I went to each, and this was, what, this was one of the major challenges. This was probably a turning point. This is where I learned one of my life's lessons for sure, in that I had to go every supplier and said, listen. I said, I've got two choices. I said, I can close the doors. Or you can work with me. Here's how we can work together. I said, what do I owe you? And each of the suppliers said, here's what you owe. I said, okay, let's put a plan together and I will pay you back, but I need some time to do that. And I will continue to operate and I will pay you X amount a month against that old debt as long as you will continue to ship me some product. They said, well, we can't do that. They said, okay, well, how do we do that? Then he goes, we'll ship you half the product, but you have to pay for half the product. So when I got deposits from clients, I had to immediately put that in. I was taking no salary because every dollar that I was accumulating had to go down to pay that debt. And thank God for my wife at that time. She had a full-time job. So, you know, we were struggling. Yeah. But we made it. But the lesson was, at the end of that 18 months, I paid back every dollar to every supplier. And after that, I had pretty much unlimited credit with those people because they knew that if I gave them my word it didn't matter They you can if you need X amount of product we'll ship it to you no questions asked and that's that was a lesson that I learned like if you meet that commitment and again it came back to a plan I needed a plan the plan was it's going to take me 18 months to get through this plan and it's going to be a struggle but when I get to the end of that it's going to be good wow so it worked and then eventually I brought a partner in we had a very successful operation. We sold that company. We started a shop-at-home franchise of floor covering and window coverings. And we built that, and we got about, uh, I think we had it at our top end. I think we had 58 fra- franchises across the country. And then I sold out to my partner that time. And then I actually went to work with my dad in that consulting firm that was ultimately acquired. That was the uh, beginning of Blue Mark. Oh, wow. So that's how I got to that. That's how I got to Blue Mark. What an interesting story!
0: Wow, yeah, that's really cool. Another thing, if if you've spent any time listening to the podcast, you know I'm a voracious reader, and one of my all time favorite stories and books is the Celestine Prophecy by James Redfield. And in the book, the first prophecy because there's a book that he then there was eleven more and then there's a thirteenth prophecy and whatever. But the, he wrote the original book; it's about two hundred and twenty five pages, and it's the basically it's you you're never. Anywhere that you're not supposed to be, and any person that you meet, or you're sitting beside, or you run into, you are, you should do anything you can to at least introduce yourself and find out why they're here in front of you because they have been put here in front of you for a reason. Yeah. Have you ever experienced the Celestine prophecy, Ken? I have. <laughs> what a great segue. Um,
1: I have. So. I mentioned my wife Lisa. Most amazing lady, incredible lady.
0: I Lisa and I, I met
1: and you've met my yeah. wife Lisa as well. She's phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. Not only personally but professionally she's a superstar in her own right, you know, in the uh in the world of real estate. She is literally one of the top producers in the city of Nashville and she does that because she just she outservices Everything. Yeah, I mean, she she her heart is in it. She's been in the business for thirty five years. She grew up in that business, and um, her family was in it. So she she really she's a, an honest, loving person. That's how she approaches her business, and she's savvy. Yeah. So she, you know, you can blend those two things. It's pretty strong. Mm-hmm. So Lisa and I met on an airplane. So the story is. Uh, I was doing some business down here in Nashville, my company, and we were um, white labeling our product. So we had a channel partner here that was reselling our technology. And I was down here training the sales team. And I was flying back because I was living in South Jersey at the time. So I was flying back to Philadelphia. Lisa was traveling up to Bangor, Maine with two girlfriends. One of the girlfriends had a boyfriend who had a place up there and they were going to go sailing and things. Well, my flight was about 10.30, 11 o'clock. She was on a O dark 30 flight in the morning. And she's there with her girlfriends, and they're chatting, and they didn't hear the announcement that there was a gate change. She misses her flight. So, she ends up on the same flight that I am, because now she had to connect through Philadelphia, through Bangor, Maine, because the only direct was that early morning flight. So she's on the same plane as I am, but we're not sitting next to each other. I'm sitting next to some guy. And before we take off, he gets up and he walks back three rows back to where she was. And he says to her, he goes, would you mind switching seats? I'd like to sit next to my wife. So she gets up and she ends up sitting next to me. How about that? Yeah. So she immediately falls asleep. When she wakes up, we just start talking. And we found that we had the most, an incredible number of things in common. We'd both been married before. Mm -hmm. I said, that's interesting. We both were married to twins. Wow. Who were both true Geminis, high school sweethearts. So there was just this litany of things that we just found in common that were just like, after a while, I was like, all right. She's BSing me, right? I'm BSing her. It's like, come on, this is not, you're just giving me a story. Like, come on, this just isn't right. Um, But it was, right? Um, And I said, well, okay. She goes, well, you know, she told me a story of where they're going. And she goes, we have this huge, long layover. What do we do in Philadelphia? I'm like, Uh, I said, you know, I don't know. I said, do you want to go to dinner? Not me. I said, do do you guys want to go to dinner? And I know Philadelphia very well. So I sent them down to Italian Market. You know, it's Rocky Land, basically. They have some great Italian restaurants down there. So I recommended a place, a little place down there on South, right off South Street and Ninth. It's called Ralph's. It's been there since like 1920. So they went there for dinner. And of course, of course, when I was walking off the plane, though, you know, her girlfriends were like, who's this guy? And just like, she's just a guy that was just. Talking to, it's like you know, relax. He's just a Ken, he's just a guy, he's just a Ken, exactly. Just a Ken, right? So, they go to dinner, and of course, one of the girls was had this really deep southern accent. And you know, the waiters are just like, you know, they're rocky guys, they're yo, like you know, what, what do you want for dinner? Let me give you, I'll tell you what the specials are, right? So, so she starts talking. So they bring the guys, the cooks, out of the kitchen. They just wanted to hear her talk. They just said, say something, say something. <laughs> and she's in her southern drawl. Oh, bless your heart, you came out here just to talk to me? Oh, that's so good. oh, gosh. Anyways, they had a great time. So she goes up to Bangor, Maine, and we just started texting each other, like, you know, how was dinner? And, and it just kind of grew from there, and it's amazing. And, you know, so many more elements to this story, and I won't make the story too long, but I think, you know, to, uh, to reiterate what you said was, if that conversation hadn't have happened, we wouldn't be married and where we are today. Yeah.
0: And what a random occurrence of the husband is sitting beside you, of a girl that she's sitting beside. Right. And you flip spots only to find out that she's about ready to have a new husband. Yeah,
1: <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. That is
0: so great. Yeah. What a but great yeah, story. Yeah,
1: the, ra- the randomness, it's like, yeah, the, the 13th, is it the 13th prophecy? There's a reason I was there at that time. There's a reason she was there at that time. Absolutely. Yeah. I love that story. Yeah. Well, the, the
0: most popular part of my podcast is the piece on perseverance. Okay. And historically speaking, especially when it comes to my inbox, okay. is that when people share their story of something that they persevered through, everybody's struggling. Yeah. With something somewhere along the yeah. line, yeah. and everybody thinks that their struggle is the worst thing that's ever happened, until they hear another person's story, and then all of a sudden they yeah. that takes the the enormity of the situation and brings it down, and it also shares some solutions. Yeah. When you think of that one thing, and it could be more than one thing, but usually it's one thing that while you were going through it, you weren't quite sure you were going to make it through, and but when you persevered through it. You realize you could take on anything that would come your way. Yeah. What's that one thing that you persevered through?
1: I think I think it's the story that I told earlier about the floor covering store. You know, I, I didn't know what I had gotten into. I thought it was going to be great. Hey, I'm going to be part of this really cool business. And the next thing I know, I'm in severe debt. The company's in severe debt. Yeah. And I'm not taking any salary. You know, thank goodness like I said, my wife was you know, was was working. We had two young children. We had one child, excuse me, and one on the way. I said, I don't know how 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 can I get through this? How do I navigate this? How do I go into work every day and have enough energy to do all of that and then go home and be a good husband and be a good father yeah. and do all the things that I need to do without this just swallowing me, right? And yeah, so it was economic for me. Um I don't know and I know other people have different you know, different maladies and different things, whether it's health, I've been fortunate not to have that, mm-hmm. so it was more economic for me. But, yeah, I, I, was, I wasn't sure if I could ever go through that. But once I got through that, I'm thinking, what else can happen? Because I realized at that time, I said, you know what, even if I don't make it, what's the worst thing that could happen to me? I said, these creditors, I said they're not going to kill me. I said, I'm going to continue. My my health is okay. Yeah. So, you know, literally I'm still going to be on this earth. I'll figure it out. But fortunate enough to work through it. So I would say that from a business perspective, those were probably the most difficult thing. The second most difficult thing, if you think, was was probably losing my dad. Yeah, You know? And everybody loses loved ones. For For sure. You know? Um, But just because we were that close... You know, mm-hmm. we we had so many things in common. We shared so many things, whether it was life, business, or sports. You know, we had a we had a we had some commonalities there too. I just watched uh, an interesting, like a five-minute
0: video from somebody that I really respect, and he took the time to talk to this this woman who was really hurting. She had just lost her uh, her son, and you know, she was distraught. I get it, and it's it's terrible. And he's and she's like, why? How could this happen? And, and he's like, you know, the pain of loss over a loved one is the actual ultimate gift that you get for being able to love somebody so powerfully yeah. that their exit leaves a massive hole in you. Yeah. And it's that's that great gift of love that is the pain. And that's why they come together. Yeah. Right? Right. And I think that's, you know, my my dad is... My dad has been struggling with his health, so you know i'm going to go see him over the Fourth of July, and I'm yep. just like th- every time is the most important time time t
1: i m e you can't how you spell love baby get, you can't you can't get enough of it you know my mom is ninety nine and a half no, she's, okay. she's going to be a hundred in October. I call her every day, and it's a five minute phone call, and it's the same phone call it's and she never you don't ask her how she's doing because she immediately deflects. It's, again, it's, it's just like when my dad was, it's all about you. How is Ken? How is Lisa doing? What's the weather like? How are the kids, the grandkids doing? It's never, hey, my arm hurts or I'm having trouble getting up. And, you know, I mean, you know, the machine breaks down. You're 99 and a half. And, you know, I, I just feel so fortunate to be able to spend that time. Yeah. Five minutes every day, but it's time. And I go up, and I, she lives right outside of Philadelphia in southern New Jersey, and I get up there definitely once a month. But we're already planning her 100th birthday party. Oh, how great. You know, because she's going to get there. Absolutely. That's awesome.
0: Well, the second half of the show, we talk about the things that you do to recharge your battery, because we've definitely experienced all the things that you do to drain your battery. Um, <laughs> and you mentioned sports. When you were growing up, Yeah. what were your
1: favorite sports, and who were your impactful sports figures? Wow, good question. My favorite sports were definitely baseball. I was a baseball player. I played Mm. at a pretty good level in high school and college. Very super competitive guy. Mm. Um, So that was my passion. I loved playing baseball more than anything. I remember those days walking out, and it was like smelling the grass. Yeah. Seriously, smelling the grass. I I think that was the first time that I realized what endorphins were, because I would literally walk out there, and my body would tingle. I was so excited to be out there, and it was so much fun to play. Yeah. Yeah. So, I don't know. As far as impactful players, I I, I don't know if there were specific athletes that I loved. Um, I loved watching the game, and the game, as I understood it because I played it at a pretty good level, I understood how difficult the game is, Right. So I would do silly things when I was a kid. I mean, obviously just, you know, playing, throwing a ball against Mm -hmm. the wall because, you know, it's tough to get eight or nine guys together to play baseball, right? So you do things to kind of entertain yourself and improve your skills. But, yeah, I mean, I was just such a passionate fan. You know, I remember um, taking my temperature in elementary school because I didn't want to go to school and I had to figure out a way to stay home so I could watch the Dodgers World Series. Right. So I took the thermometer and I'm laying in bed and I'm holding it up against the the (laughs) light bulb. And I'm like, okay, I got it to a little over a hundred. And I say, Hey mom, mom, I can't go to school today. And listen, she's no dummy. She knew what I was doing, but I would do anything to be able to stay home and watch that game. It's that passionate. And then tying it back to my dad. Um, I got into following football and lived right outside of Washington, mm-hmm. so I was a Washington Redskins fan, and uh, so about eight or nine years old, I begged my dad, I said, can we get tickets? I really want to go watch the games live, mm-hmm. and he was okay, and, you know, he got a letter back and said, well, I'm sorry, you know, it's sold out, but if you want to get on a waiting list, so he got on the waiting list. The next year, they added 2,500 seats. And this is when it was called D.C. Stadium, not even RFK, and then it yeah. became RFK Stadium, 2,500 bleacher seats which was in the outfield of D.C. Stadium and um, it became a big part of my life um, because I would go to the games with my dad and I was very passionate I was a very passionate fan I mean winning or losing to me was like death is this the Kilmer Jurgensen Redskins oh yeah oh right on oh yeah Kilmer Jurgensen you know you had, there were bumper stickers that said, I love Sonny or I love Billy. Yeah, my dad you know? loves Sonny Jurgensen. Oh, yeah. Well, I have a Sonny Jurgensen jersey that is signed by Sonny Jurgensen. When I sold my carpet franchise, <laughs> my partner got me a, uh, bought for me a framed Sonny Jurgensen jersey with his signature on it, which I still have. And I, but I've taken it out of the frame, and I wear it. No I kidding. wear it to the games. But that, that tradition of going to those games with my dad was very impactful for me oh, yeah. back to the time you spent. So I, I don't know if it was a specific individual that became, you know, iconic mm-hmm. for me. Um, it was more the team, candidly. Mm. And following that and become passionate about it, you know. And I would align myself with the, the players that I love. If I, if I had to pick one player, probably, there's probably two in the history of my following that team that stuck out. One would be Daryl Green. I mean, he was the first shutdown cornerback. He was the first shutdown corner, and he was just ridiculous. He was just incredible. Um, He had a major impact um, just because he was a great guy, Mm -hmm. great in the community. Guy you never heard of getting in any kind of trouble. He was a great guy. On the opposite side was my crazy side. So my second favorite player was a guy named John Riggins. And if you remember John (laughs) Rigo, I mean, he was a nut. You know, the first guy with the mohawk and, you know, and he played for Joe Gibbs. And Joe Gibbs was, you know, very staid, very Christian, very methodical. And he had to deal with this guy, John Riggins, who was a crazy man. Um, But he was just fun, you know. And you talk about determined... And you know, on the field, he was just fun to watch.
0: And like, he, uh, what a great play! When they won the Super Bowl, I guess it was '82. Yes, against the Dolphins. Yes, I remember that was it was actually played in '83 because Marino was a rookie. <laughs> no, that <laughs> was Woodley. Woodley was the quarterback. There. Yeah, yeah, they it played. Was it was back. Woodley. Yep, it, wasn't, it wasn't. It wasn't Marino. It was, was not Marino. That's right. It was. It was definitely. Uh, yep. It was Woodley, mm-hmm. and uh, he, he he was the best player in the league. He had the most yards rushing. But he was old. Like, you don't see running backs yeah. have dominant years
1: that yeah. late in their career like they did with yeah. him. Well, he had five guys in front of them the called Hogs. the Hogs that, you know, I don't want to say it made his job easier, but it made his job easier. I mean, they were iconic in itself. Oh, that, that yeah. was, that, those were fun years to watch um, the team, obviously because of their success, but they also had characters you know, <laughs> and the characters. So go back to you say it wasn't it wasn't one individual um But those individuals were part of a team, and I associated myself with the team. So I think, you know, those specific individuals as part of the team were kind of – and I love Sonny, just watching him throw the ball. That's so funny that you say that. Another thing that I'll never forget, like
0: you were talking about the smell of baseball. I played a lot of baseball in my youth. Yep. And when I tore my rotator cuff the second time, the the pain of the original dream of being a pitcher was gone. And I basically gave up baseball. At eighteen, so it's now. This is 2012. Hmm. I haven't really. I mean, I may have tossed a baseball ten times. Yeah, since '92 at yeah. that particular point. Yeah. Yeah. and I'm going to see Pearl Jam at Wrigley Field. Awesome. And I'm, you know, I'm all Pearl Jammed up. I'm in there with some with some Pearl Jam fans, Anywhere? and I walk up into I walk because we're sitting in the band's VIP section. Because mm. I teach the guy who insures okay. all of the
1: tours. Oh, okay.
0: He's like, I'll get you some tickets, right? So I'm literally sitting right in front of and two to the left of Eddie's brother. Right? So it's but when I walk up the steps mm-hmm. and that the blast of freshly cut grass. <sighs> man, I got thrown back into like high school baseball. Yeah. I mean, it was like a time travel. I went into like a 10-minute warp. I'm like,
1: I could smell the baseballs. I could smell the bat. It was nuts. Well, the olfactory sense, right, brings back, they say, the most vivid memories of any of your senses. No doubt.
0: I couldn't believe it. Because that was, I mean, that's eight. That was 20 years of no baseball whatsoever. And I walk out of wow. there for a concert. <laughs> I'm like, wham. <laughs> that, was,
1: that was pretty impactful. Were you a Yankee fan or a Met fan? Or a Phillies fan? Neither. I'm a D.C. guy. I was, That was talking about frustrating parts of my life? Okay, I was a Senators fan. And they were oh. always, ter- so okay, so I grew up a Senators fan, and then what happens? Well, then they end up moving to Minnesota, and they become the Minnesota Twins. Then they get a new franchise. Okay, so I attached myself to the new franchise, the new the new Senators. Bob Short, the owner at that time, well, he decides to sell the team, and they become the Texas Rangers. And then I was SOL. At that time, I was like, all right, I don't have a team anymore, and I wasn't a, an Oriole fan, so I just kind of... Yeah okay. When I was living outside of Philadelphia in southern New Jersey, I did attach myself to the Phillies because I loved baseball and I loved watching. And the, yeah. and the Phillies were great when I was there. Yeah, they had a great team. That's the Schmidt Rose luzinski Rose Boa Trio. All those guys, Manny Trio, yeah, Manny Trio. Yeah. So when I first started mowing lawns, Manny Trio was a client. <laughs> is that right? <laughs> exactly. That right. Is so and I remember <laughs> putting a swing set together for he, for him because and his wife was he, he you know he was. Um, married to, I forget, it was a Venezuelan or Argentinian lady whose family was incredibly rich. So Manny played baseball. Because Manny liked to play baseball and he was really good at it. And if you see him out there smiling, he was that guy smiling. He's like, because he was under no pressure. Yeah. Regardless of what his contract was, Manny was not under any uh, pressure.
0: They had two of the greatest uh, afros out there, too Gary Maddox, Gary Maddox and Maddox. Bake McBride. Bake McBride. <laughs> looking at some yeah. of my baseball cards and oh, I'm like, gosh, Bake McBride,
1: yeah, they were fun. They, I mean, that you know that team had great personalities. Oh my
0: God, they had Tuck Mcgraw too. Yeah, I mean, they had
1: Carlton too. They had Steve
0: Carlton, which who, who, who Rick was like Russell? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were yeah. Jimmy They're, Rollins, I mean, the, the, Dick Ruthven was a was the number two starter behind lefty.
1: Yeah, they had they had um, yeah they had a good team. Yeah. It was fun. So wow, yeah. memory lane. I know. See, get me started on baseball. We're gonna start wow. talking. Yeah, yeah. Were you big into music when you were a kid? You a music guy? Yeah.
0: Yeah. What, what's your uh, What's your jam? Well, like, like,
1: like I got to remember how old I am. So I grew up. You know, my. You know, when I was getting into music, it was the '60s. Yeah. and early '70s. So I'm a classic rock guy. You're a Zeppelin. Oh yeah. Uh, any Any of that? I mean, one of the first concerts I went to. What well, the first major concert I went to? Concert I went to was Rare Earth. Remember Rare Earth? No. Oh well, you have to go back and listen to some Rare Earth. You'll ah. remember some of their songs, but who opened for Rare Earth was this band that we had never heard of at the time. They came out with two drummers and some amazing guitarists called the Almond Brothers. The Almond Brothers opened for Rare Earth. I and like after that. listening to the Almond Brothers, I'm going like, I don't know who this next band, Rare, Earth is going to be, but they can't be as good as the Almond Brothers, man. Um, so I'm, yeah, clap I've never seen the Almond Brothers. I've never seen the Almond Brothers. Do but you?
0: I've never, I've oh, had, never, have. Have. Okay. I've never, have. Yeah. I'd
1: love to, uh, I mean,
0: obviously the, the, the whole band's not intact anymore, but yeah, they're not, they got
1: whew,
0: yeah, so many great songs. Yeah. Yeah. We've
1: seen, um, I- I've seen the Almond Brothers a couple times and not with, you know, not with the original, actually, I think it's uh, Warren Hayes from Government Mule mm. sits in for, you know, plays the Dwayne Allman side of it. Yeah. Uh, we've seen that and Lisa and I went to a great concert for one of our anniversaries. We went to, um, Charlotte and saw Greg Allman and Steve Winwood. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it was awesome. It was anniversary, so I got Explorers, I got front row seats, and it was an amazing concert. And that was really fun. Wow. That was really fun. So so that's my jam. What's the, what's the great is that the greatest show you've ever seen? Oh gosh. The greatest concert I've ever seen. Um I don't know. That's that's a hard one. You know, I missed a lot of great concerts (laughs) because I didn't have any money. It's like I couldn't go. Um, I went to Live Aid. No kidding. Oh yeah, we went to Live Aid and it was great. We went the night before, and you know, my my brother in law's van, and we you know we spent the night in Southern New Jersey in the parking lot because we wanted to be there. And literally on uh, ABC and MTV were photographing it. And there's a video of us as part of a group, running into the stadium to get a spot. I would say that's probably the greatest concert.
0: How about Live that? Aid
1: was just, the original Live Aid, it was unbelievable. Uh, yeah. and that's the same year that they flew, Phil Collins flew over on the Concord, because he played at Wembley, and then they brought him over, and then he played at, uh, at Veterans, no, it wasn't at Veterans Stadium, it was, um, oh, why can't I think of the name of it? It was the oldest stadium in Philadelphia. Not filled. Uh, oh, my I'll, God. It's a coliseum. I'll, I, I'll remember it. And, and pardon <sighs> oh me for not God. remembering. I cannot believe it. I can't think yeah, of it. Yeah, I can't think of it either. It was terrible. It was old. And the bath—you know—the bathrooms were ridiculous. Um, but anyway, that's where it was. And Live Aid was just awesome. Wow. Live Aid. Live Aid.
0: Wait, did Willie Nelson play there for you?
1: No. No, he was out in the
0: Midwest somewhere. Yeah, that or was... maybe he was in Texas. Yeah,
1: that was Was that part of Live Aid or was that Farm Aid?
0: Oh, that was Farm Aid. That was Farm aid. That was Farmade. Yeah. Who were the major head? Was it Was it
1: Phil Collins and Genesis? No. Uh, the major headliners in the U.S. were uh, the Rolling Stones. Um, Joan Baez opened it up. An old classic. They had the Hooters. They had Hooters. Billy Idol. They had oh, I can't remember all the bands. It was wow. It was one after another. But the Stones closed thing, and Tina Turner came out and played with the Rolling Stones. It was awesome. Never seen the Stones. That was the only time I seen them. Huh. Apparently, they still rock it. They came
0: here. Was it last year and crushed it at Nissan. <sighs> yeah, it's hard to believe they're still crushing it. I know. Hey man, when you got an, when you got an arsenal of songs like they got. Yeah. Yeah. Who's your who Who's the Mount Rushmore of rock for you? Uh, Eric Clapton. Clapton. I'm a Clapton guy. Yeah. Who are the other three?
1: Oh, there's got oh, yeah, Mount oh, Mount Rushmore. Okay, I'm sorry. So probably Jimi Hendrix. Mm. You know, I mean it was hard, but it was different. Yeah. Um Wow. Clapton, Hendrix. Who would who would be whose head would be on there? See, there're more bands than individuals, though. Even if it was bands. Yeah. I mean, favorite bands. You know, I, I was more of a southern rock guy. So, Allman Brothers definitely would have been up there. You know, I had a scared. Gre- yeah, for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Greg Allman, Dwayne Allman, the Allman Brothers, Dickie Betts—that group—they were just amazing. Yeah, they, you absolutely. Know, just some of the stuff they put out—I love that style of music. Yeah. Um, probably those right? Interesting. I always
0: found like, like the Beatles strike me as well, yeah. not rock and roll, but they—they they are. The Beatles are the Beatles, right? Yeah, they're, it's like you can't oh, really yeah. say anything else other than oh no that, right? Yeah, so they have to be on it.
1: Oh yeah, oh absolutely. I mean they have to. Yeah, be. I had I had all those Beatles albums for sure. Yeah. Um, and then I, I think that Zeppelin, Zeppelin definitely would be up there. Uh, oh no, absolutely. And they're, then, oh, they're th- all. Then I'm wondering, like,
0: it gets really interesting, right? Because then you start looking at wow. is it the Stones? And mm-hmm. I'm not a big Stones fan. I think ah. they got, like I like, in my opinion, they got 20 great songs. That's a lot. That's just me. Okay. Right? So okay. I'm not the biggest Stones fan, but they have the largest library of songs. Yeah. Massive. Prolific writers. Oh, yeah. But
1: the Beatles were prolific writers. Yeah. It, it, collectively and individually. I mean, yeah. you know, their anthologies, you know, you could listen to them for days and not hear the same thing twice. Yeah. yeah. But I'm not sure that Pearl Jam and U2 don't belong. And
0: I'm not the biggest U2 fan either, yeah. but I think, you know, the impact that Pearl Jam has made over there 30 years. Yeah. And the impact that U2 makes across the world <clears throat>
1: is pretty substantial. It is. It is. Yeah, they're iconic. I I I don't I would never argue that they're not mm-hmm. iconic. I just kind of feel, I personally feel like they're at a second level. The second tier. That's the second tier for me. Mm-hmm. And not because I don't like their music. I yeah. just think my personal taste it's like Weller it's like you know they're all iconic (laughs) that's right (laughs) Right? these are all really good it's like you know what's your what's your preference you know what's your preference Hmm. I have one question for you if you don't mind my asking a question for you in your opinion what is the single most difficult thing to do in sports I think
0: barely hitting a a hundred mile per hour fastball. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think, as a whole, if we took the entire population, gave them a bat, and stood up, and faced Araldus Chapman's hundred and five heat, <laughs> or that guy who pitches for the University of Tennessee right now is throwing yeah. like yeah one hundred and seven one hundred and six. Yep, th- that would be the fewest amount of success stories. Mm-hmm. I think shooting a par round of golf is eerily close. Yeah. Now, well we have to take all of the martial arts and all of boxing, and is is that more difficult? I, I have a hard time really quantifying that, because if you're going to say fight, well, there's if somebody's fighting, there's always a winner and there's always a loser. Right. So maybe not. Right. In golf, there's 143 losers and one winner. Yep. You know? Uh, but I think hitting a baseball yeah. at, at 100 miles per hour and understanding how much training it takes to be able to to train yourself how to hit a pitch yeah. there. It's interesting to listen to the neuroscience of how the brain begins to take snapshots of the ball coming out of a doable window. Yeah, And if the ball comes out of the window, and you have an eighth of a second to determine that when that yeah. window is. Yeah. I think that that's got to be the hardest, and I really the the study that I understood about this was in in an all star game in the nineties. the the very famous fast pitch softball American pitcher Jenny Finch hmm. was going to pitch to Poo Holes, Paul Molitor, Barry Bonds, <laughs> Frank Thomas, and Mark McGuire. Okay, and Bonds said. There ain't no way I'm stepping in there, and everybody else is like, "Oh, come on!" He goes, "No way!" He says, "We don't ever see different angle. We don't ever see the ball come out of there. Yep. Nobody's gonna hit her. Yep. I mean, she's standing closer to us. I mean, even though it's coming like 72 miles per hour, it looks like about 105. Oh yeah, we'll never touch it because we don't. We can't see that window. Yep. And everybody wrote him, and then nobody, t- nobody even fouled a pitch off. And then he he went into this big dissertation in his book that he wrote about. Understanding the neuroscience of hitting and how the, you have to hit balls for you have to learn how to hit balls at 55, then 65, you know, from peewee to right. little right. to pony to high school, right. college. Right. And then that first time you taste high 90s, you almost can't believe the difference between 88 and 95. Oh, it's... Versus 82 to 98. I mean, 82 to 88. Or well,
1: 88. not and not only is that, there's another factor. The other factor is distance, right? So you take Randy Johnson who was 6'10", 6'11", his release point versus, I don't know, Max Scherzer. He's, you know, six or eight inches taller than Max. Yeah. That six or eight inches at that speed adds another dimension. Yeah. Can you imagine being a left-handed hitter hitting Randy Johnson? yeah. I remember John Kruk hitting against him and at the All-Star game, yeah. and Randy threw one behind him, and, and, and John just basically just put his bat down, walked back to the dugout, and said, I'm out. I'm done. Yeah, one Bring me up.
0: One of the greatest hitters of all time refused mm-hmm. to hit against him, Rafael Palmeiro. Yeah. If he was pitching, he wouldn't play. Because yeah. it would ruin him. Like, he would get in bad habits. Yeah. Because the ball would start on the other side of his head. Because yeah. he he was kind of yeah. like three-quarter yeah. arm, yeah. yeah. and he had that big, wide... Like he threw, like he threw a foot was from the first baseline, oh. and came across your Crazy. body. Crazy! You had to make up your mind. Yeah,
1: that's what I'm saying. And that's you, if he's throwing a fastball. Yeah, if he's throwing a, you know, that a, slider oh. that's you know that's breaking thirty some inches and dropping. That's why I agree with you. I think that's the single most difficult thing to do in sports is to hit that that ball with a barrel at that distance. Yeah, and do it consistently. You know, if you ha- if you had a golfer that you know hit the fairway 30% of the time, he wouldn't Never be a pro. It. But if he successful 30% of the time as a baseball player in the Hall of Fame. That's exactly right. That's so true. <laughs> favorite, favorite movie? Oh.
0: Or we can break it off in, like, action and comedy and drama. Oh, gosh. Favorite
1: movies. Oh, <sighs> gosh. Um... Godfather series definitely so is, good is one of my all time favorites um I like world War two movies really yep longest day mm which is an old movie yeah. right my dad loves that movie yeah it was one of the first movies I saw in uh, in a movie theater really yeah huh. yep yeah i would I would say Godfather would probably be the series hmm. um, greatest you know
0: interesting like to me I, I always like so Between many. Gladiator, Gladiators, Force Gump, yeah, um, Goodwill Hunting, oh yeah, and uh, if I have to laugh, and I need a really good laugh, yeah, I've never laughed harder than the first hour of Wedding Crashers. The oh, first hour okay. of Wedding Crashers, okay. I have to pause the movie like six or seven times because I have to catch my breath because <laughs> I'm literally in tears. Yeah. It cracks me up yeah, so much. Yeah,
1: there's so many funny. I mean, Christmas Vacation is a standard. Yeah, you know, and I think that you know my son Evan. Who, who loves movies? You know, he he. We we said okay. Let's see if we can have a conversation just using movie lines. <laughs> and and I think a good part of the conversation was was Christmas vacation lines. You know, oh. find yourself something real nice, Clark. <laughs> 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 I think I think we say that almost every time we go into a store. <laughs> oh. There's so many great movies. But, so yeah. many great. But you movies. know, it's, the other thing that's interesting to me is when we were talking about sports is, you know, at, at the dollars that are involved now and people get upset about that. And I'm like, okay, why? Okay. So this quarterback's getting paid twenty six million, twenty five million million, $25 million a year. And, you know, and you're sitting in the stands and you're why? And he misses an open receiver. Oh my gosh, this guy's getting paid too much money. It's like, I, and it's, maybe this is why I've gotten older because I talked about the competitiveness early on mm-hmm. it's like the way I view sporting events now is it's an event to watch and to enjoy mm-hmm. I enjoy the competitiveness of it and I like to root but at the end of the day I don't you know I don't carry it with me if my team doesn't win the yeah. following days I used to do that but it's like so do people get upset when they pay Jack Nicholson 20 million bucks to do a movie no one comments on that but you upset if you know ABC quarterback is having a lousy season, and he's getting paid twenty million bucks. Yep. I don't understand the difference in the mentality there. It's like it's entertainment to me.
0: Yeah, I, mean, I guess the only real the only real thing is is that you don't have a rooting interest. Correct. Right for Jack Nicholson. Yeah. Yeah. He just like like I love uh, Russell Crowe. And Tom Hanks, I think they're the two best. Yeah. And, but I don't, I don't, I don't even actually even care to know how much money they made. It doesn't just, matter. If they're coming to you. out. I'm just going to watch. Yeah. But I'm here to tell you, I'm a Penn Stater, right? If my, Are n- you? if my Nittany lines aren't worth a flip. Okay. You now keep in mind, I went to I, that, like, talk about things that matter to you. Yeah. Like, I went to a lot of games with my dad. They were the most important days of my entire we yeah. get we get an RV. He had a friend that had an RV. Yep. We'd go up the night before. Yep. The first game I went to see was Doug Flutie and Boston College. Oh my. The year that he won the Heisman Trophy. Yep. And then I also saw them play Iowa Hawkeyes with Chuck Long and mm-hmm. you know that's the only time I've ever seen them lose was the Chuck Long and the Iowa Hawkeyes. And just the like every time they lose, I lost. All yeah. the way up until I was twenty two. Yeah. And then I got over I got over yeah. it. But you know, you have such a I think college sports even has
1: more of a vested interest than professional sports. They do. Um, and I didn't realize that until I moved down here. Like mid-Atlantic, it was, you know, I went to the University of Maryland. So Maryland to me was basketball. Yeah, you were Albert King and Buck Williams, baby. I was before that. Oh. When I was a freshman, when I, when I was a sophomore, it, the freshman team, and back then they had freshman teams. That's right. They were separate. They weren't allowed to play varsity. Their freshman team was Tom McMillan, Len Elmore. John Lucas, Mo Howard, and Steve Shepard. How are they doing? <laughs> they all did pretty well, didn't yeah. they? Not only in the bit, you know, not only as athletes, but as business people, yeah. they were all highly successful. And Lefty Drizel was the coach That's there, right. and you know that was that was that. But when I moved here, I didn't realize the passion that people had for football, SEC football specifically, down in this yeah. this neighborhood. So it, I like it. Because I like people being passionate about whatever they do in life. Oh, yeah. You know, so if you want to be a fan, I I may not root for your team, but I will respect and admire your passion. Yeah, I appreciate the passion. Yeah, I do. Like when I was
0: growing up, I literally hated Alabama. Not bad. You know, because Penn State, it was like, Penn State played eight cupcakes, Nebraska, Alabama, and <laughs> Notre Dame. Yeah. It was all three of those teams? Yeah. Can't stand them. them. Yeah. Hate them. Yeah. Like, I think I remember when, it was during during the, you know, the the Iraq War right mm-hmm. it's off color but I mean it's not much I'd hate it. when Alabama played Notre Dame for a national championship and somebody asked me who who I wanted to win and I said the Taliban <laughs> because, <laughs>
1: because
0: I, I anybody but Alabama <laughs> anybody but either one of those two teams I can't stand either of them but I just think that oh, uh, gosh, I lo- but funny. but when I was at Mississippi State yep, I, I had to do some service and one of the services I had to work in a um in one of the parking lots for the football game against Alabama. And oh. I got the Crimson Tide um parking lot. And I'm like <laughs> they were the nicest But did people. you show up for work? Oh yeah I showed uh, I up. I bet you did. And and they were so yeah. great. Yeah. And it took the edge off because I just realized that they're just as passionate about they're their red and white. As I'm passionate about my blue and white. There's nothing wrong with that. And I was that. Really, that was really one of the most impactful moments for me because I really, really drew walls up. Like I wouldn't. There's nothing that I would root for Alabama, Notre Dame, or Nebraska. Yeah.
1: Nothing. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think you learned that you know you can be respectful of the other side yeah. as long as they treat you the same way. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Right. That's so true. Yeah, man. Favorite places you've traveled? Oh, well. There's uh, several. Um, I'm a warm weather guy. Mm-hmm. So I love the Caribbean. I absolutely love the Caribbean. I love the ABC Islands, so Aruba, Curacao, Bonaire. There's, that's one of my favorite places in the world to travel. Costa Rica recently, at least I've been to Costa Rica yeah. several times. And it's just, it, it's not only beautiful, it feels good. It's clean air. Yeah. It's just gorgeous. There's lots of activities. We're very active. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been to Park City. Utah a couple times. Deer Valley went skiing there a few times and fell in love with it. So then we went back in the summertime to experience some of the things you could do in the summertime. So we went fly fishing, we went hiking, we did all kinds of things. So it's active. It's just an active, really great environment. But I think the one place that I've liked the best, my favorite place in the world right now is probably Italy. Mm. I just love Italy. We've been to Tuscany several times. Um, We took... um, Some of the kids, the older kids and their spouses, Mm -hmm. three years ago, we took them uh, to a week in Tuscany, and it was just magical. It was magical. I mean, you know, we were enjoying the food and the wine and the country, and it was just unbelievable. And Lisa and I stayed an extra week after we flew them home, and we went down to southern Italy and did the Amalfi Coast, which we had never done. And it was phenomenal. Everything they cracked it up to be? It's real high on my list. Yeah. First of all, I love the food. It's my favorite food. I could eat Italian food almost every day. Yeah. So, and it's just, yeah, loved every everything. Like the, the art, the history. Um, you know, it's funny. Like in the United States, you see, oh man, I bought this old house. How old is your house? Like, well, it's 150 years old. Whoa, really? We stayed in a castle the first night, right outside of Milan, between Milan and uh, Parma, It was 1,200 years old. Wow. It's like it's so different right their history versus our history you realize how new a country we really are oh yeah no doubt about it so yeah italy would be my number one well ken i can't
0: thank you enough for sharing your amazing story and all thank the uh, all the fun tales and uh showing me the the whiskey house and giving me a run through of mr mr weller's very best and the pap to top me off so thank you very much for exposing me to all this and uh and sharing your story. And thanks for coming on The Verge, buddy. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Appreciate it, man. Yeah, that was awesome. Cure is focused on providing natural alternatives to aid with current or previous medical conditions. Cure does this by providing therapeutic properties of natural cannabinoid formulations for multiple uses, whether internally or externally. Ask your physical therapist or your primary care physician if cannabinoids are right for you. Or check out their website, www.curemich.com. Cure. Cannabis used for research and education. On the Verge is produced by Chase Akers. If you've enjoyed the show, leave a five-star rating and write a review. Click subscribe to make sure that you don't miss a single episode.